Hello everyone and welcome to our first Farm Sense podcast of 2021. Before we start this episode, we would like to share a message from the Farm Sense team reflecting on the past year. 2020 has been a difficult year for all, with the pandemic affecting our lives in more ways than we can ever have imagined. As most of you listening are healthcare professionals, we would like to extend our gratitude and thanks for all the hard work you have put in on the front line in order to overcome this pandemic. We know it has been a very difficult year for all, but let us hope together, united as one, we will see a change in 2021. One thing we have learned from our guests so far is to chase your dreams, not to give up and be grateful for the small blessings in life. We hope you achieve all your goals for this year and more importantly, stay safe and well. So happy new year to you all from the FarmSense team. Now during this podcast, there will be some background noise. We recorded this in our guest speakers clinic room and for those who have worked in secondary care, you can understand how loud hospitals can be. So apologies for the noise disturbances in the background. So let's go ahead and get started. Hello everyone and welcome to today's podcast, a day in the life of an advanced gastroenterology pharmacist brought to you by PharmaSense. My name is Sawar Shah, one of the co-founders of PharmaSense, a clinical pharmacist in secondary care and a graduate entry medical student. It is my pleasure to announce our guest speaker today, Mohamed Aladitta, an advanced gastroenterology pharmacist with a special interest in inflammatory bowel disease. Mohammed is currently employed by the Gastro Department at Calderdale and Huddersfield NHS Foundation Trust. As a pre-reg, I have worked with Mohammed, shadowing him on his gastro ward. I must say his work ethic, his knowledge and his passion for all things healthcare is inspiring. I've learned a huge deal from Mohammed, so I'm honoured to have him here today on this episode. So Mohammed, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Stawa. So, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, Mohammed? So, I... I studied pharmacy as a mature student. We were, I was part of the first cohort yeah. at the University of Huddersfield. Throughout my uh, undergraduate years, I worked um, in the evenings part-time in a mid-100-hour pharmacy. Mm. So as an undergraduate, I would say I had quite extensive exposure to community pharmacy. Yeah. And I've probably seen it evolve over the number of years whilst I was working there. I did my pre-registration with the uh, the trust I'm currently employed at and then I carried on as a hospital pharmacist thereafter uh, did the foundation program the diploma program there was a an opportunity to go into the gastroenterology specialty yeah and then developed a special interest uh, for IBD mm. and just basically developed within the service uh, with support from colleagues in pharmacy as well as the medical division Mm, okay so I think that's really good that you did it as a mature student and um, you're probably the first um, speaker that we've had that's done it as a mature student mm. um, what was your first degree that you did then prior to pharmacy pharmaceutical sciences <laughs> oh, so yeah okay. well anything that I had pharmacy in its title <laughs> yeah. I think yeah no, initially I had planned to do pharmacy you know after college yeah I, I'm a strong believer everything happens for a reason you learn from it yeah, and I honestly think uh, my work ethic or my approach to studies was completely different when I went back as a mature student, a lot yeah. more focused, mm. a lot more disciplined. Mm. Um, and when I look at the t- the way my career, everything just falls into place. It's just yeah. Um, so I, I'm a strong believer of everything you know happens. Yeah. For so, a reason at the right time and I have no regrets. Yeah, so I think you've done very well anyway. As I said, I've shadowed you and I think your role is amazing and what you're doing is amazing, especially that you've done it as a mature student. Um, I think only those that have worked with you and shadowed you can see the passion you have. And um, you know how all the pre-regs that have shadowed you, even when I was a pre-reg, all the pre-regs loved you and they all said to me, as soon as I started my six months placement, it was like, wait till you're with Mohammed, you're going to love it, you're going to enjoy being with him. And I, I can truly say um, it's all definitely true. So you said you're a gastropharmacist now with a special interest in inflammatory bowel disease. We'll call it IBD for the rest of this episode. Um I know you've worked very hard to get to this position and you're employed now by the medical division, um, which is very good. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about your working week? Yeah. So the average week for myself uh, 
so Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the mornings yeah. is protected time for my clinical pharmacy input, but it's protected service for gastroenterology. Yeah. So what that entails is that I participate actively on the mm. consultant-led or registrar-led ward rounds, mm. and I'll have uh, active input. I'll take responsibility for the prescribing, yeah. um, monitoring supply of medications. Mm. I will keep an eye on for the discharges. We'll try to preempt them and plan in advance. Um, I have two days where it's uh, in uh, for the IBD service, two whole days. So that will be biologic review clinics, yeah. initiation of uh, new immunosuppressive medication. Mm. And I will also participate in the flare clinics. So these are patients who are requesting an emergency mm. uh, callback from the IBD service uh, you know, yeah. for support in regards to their IBD and the current flyer. Mm. Um, in addition to that, I'll, I also have uh, certain aspects with re- from a directorate p- uh, perspective. Yeah. So it'll be liaison with maybe CCGs, um, uh, medicine management level, commissioning level. Mm. Just work with all the, the different stakeholders, uh, the colleagues within pharmacy. Um, so yeah, it's a quite a varied role, um, but the IBD aspect is officially the, especially the phone clinics is mm. in its infancy i would say uh, so for myself it's always every day bring something new right? yeah. so i'm always learning developing you know and i've got very good support i would say from yeah. colleagues both in pharmacy and mm. uh, within the gastroenterology service yeah so i think it sounds a amazing role especially because it's patient facing it's very clinical you're on the ward rounds i think it's the way all pharmacies should be striving to work towards and i think it will definitely be inspiring for our, our more junior pharmacists and pre-regs to listen to so i'll be honest when i was a pre-reg and i shouted you mohammed you was different to any other pharmacist I worked with. Honestly, how you were so integrated into the team, how all the nurses came to you for mm-hmm. support, how you was on the ward round. And honestly, I loved it so much. And it's a, st- <coughs> Sorry, it's a style of working. I definitely worked as, as a Bantix pharmacist. I made sure I was in the handovers, made sure I was in the ward rounds just for my own learning. Um, what do you think is the benefits of a pharmacist being so integrated into the MDT, being on the ward rounds? What do you think... It's the best thing about it. I think there's there's loads of different aspects to yeah. probably appreciate. I think what we need to aim towards is to be able to think laterally. Yeah. Not just be like a one-trick pony mm. coming in with our recommendations, you know, with respect to therapeutics. But I think the biggest benefit for myself was gaining a, a wide appreciation of how, you know, patients yeah. are assessed, approached by the wider team, not mm. just the, the medics, but mm. also the nurses staff, the dietitians, yeah. uh for example, the alcohol liaison team, mm. you get an appreciation for other people's yeah. roles and what they bring to the table as yeah, well. And definitely. ultimately, it's a holistic approach mm. to patient care. And, you know, on the other hand, they then have an appreciation for what pharmacists mm. bring to the table as well. Mm. And uh, also, we're influencing prescribing decisions at the point of when yeah. these decisions are made. And it's difficult to explain sometimes, but I think if you've experienced it, like you've probably seen yourself yeah. whilst you've been on, you know, the rotations, mm. it's a whole different ball game when yeah. you've got the patient in front of you. You can, you know, you can, as they call it, eyeballing the patient, yeah. and especially in a specialty like gastroenterology, where you know the average patient stays not just like you know yeah. the, the one day or one night. Mm. You're talking, you know, at least a week or something. Yeah. And you gain an appreciation of how that patient recovers mm. or in some unfortunate cases, how they deteriorate. Yeah. And you get an appreciation and an experience with the medication that mm. we're using and it, it develops um, an intuition. Yeah. Sometimes you get that, you know, pardon the pun, you get that gut feeling. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you, you know, you learn to go with your instincts mm. and when to escalate and so mm. on. So I would say for myself anyway, the biggest benefit has been one I've managed to learn from mm. uh, my colleagues, yeah. fellow colleagues, um, and not just, like I said, medics, but other mm. uh, healthcare professionals. Mm. And even now, commonly, I, I know who to refer to and when mm. to refer to, yeah. and, y- you know, you still want their input mm. on what they've got to add as well. Yeah. And then it's like a holistic approach yeah. to, you know, uh, for the patient. Mm. And in an outpatient setting, sometimes you can expedite a lot of these decisions, yeah. uh, you know, in the, in the care of the patient. Mm. But, yeah, I think ultimately, 
uh, I would say as a whole is in, is developing your experience yeah. developing that intuition mm. uh, I think one of our consultants he put it really well especially to new junior doctors when they're starting they probably recall a lot of the theoretical information more yeah. than him yeah. but he knows how to connect the dots yeah. you know yeah. and that's you can't teach mm. that you know in a textbook manner yeah. that comes with experience uh, so ultimately I would say that is one of the for mm. me anyway that was yeah. the biggest benefit mm. and I'm still le- developing you yeah. know learning I think I think I definitely agree with everything you've said there especially the facts that through pharmacy as well through MFAM we don't really get that much time in practice I know you do it in pre-reg so mm. there's a lot of things that we haven't covered in practice for myself um, as a band six when I started and when I was rotating I learned so much from being on the ward rounds so not just from doctors from specialist nurses from yeah. dietitians and I think it's so important to be um, in the ward rounds as you've mentioned there's only so much you can tell as a pharmacist looking at the notes and looking at the bloods being on the ward round seeing the patient eyeballing the patient and being part of the prescribing decision Absolutely, that's yeah. where you definitely learn a good example would be when I first started working on gastro myself yeah. I was reviewing the blood um, and the patient obs and someone's blood pressure was low the heart rate was low and they started carvidolol and I, I was clueless I, so I joined the ward round I was thinking I asked why is carvidolol started and the consultant explained to me parcel vein hypertension why it started and I think things like that you develop so much being on the ward round being with the MDT and so much from the nurses yeah. as well so I think it's very good point and the point that you mentioned about influencing prescribing decisions is so important why should we as pharmacists pick up on errors why why aren't we there at the start when they're making the prescribing decisions giving our advice especially on a ward such as gastroenterology where there's so many times aki or medications that need to be changed it's so important for a pharmacist to be there to help with these prescribing decisions decisions as well i think for all pre-regs listening as well they should do what you made me do when i started my pre-reg Go shadow your stoma nurses, diabetic nurses, pain team. I thought you were going to say press ups on the wall. Add it. Well, sure, it, make you do that. Yeah, yeah he only made me do hundred every week. That's yeah. all Mohammed made me do. Yeah, uh, I mean that recommendation was primarily from my own experiences. Yeah. When I was uh, pre-reg, mm. I remember one of the pharmacists he uh, encouraged me um, to organise, you know, shadowing yeah. visits with the clinical nurse specialist. Mm. And in that respect, I have a massive amount of respect for nurses because I feel that, you know, healthcare is going through this phase where people rolled, you know, initially they had like clear boundaries. But because of, you know, we're seeing more and more complex patients, the demands Mm. on the service, on the NHS, just throughout the country, what we're finding is a lot of healthcare professionals are broadening their their area of, you know, practice, should we say. And I think nurses have really capitalized on that very, very mm. early on, you know, whereas I think, for example, pharmacists, you yeah. know, as, as just generally speaking, mm. we're really probably, you know, just getting onto it now yeah. with, for example, the roles in GP practice. Mm. Nurses developed that really early on. So for myself, I did that a lot during my pre-reg yeah. year. I identified who the clinical nurse specialists were. And to be honest, over yeah. the years, I've seen... They've actually grown from mm. when I was doing when I did my pre-reg. Mm. You know, there's only a few, several yeah. teams. Now, you know, for a lot of the the big special uh, uh, mm. core medical specialties, you'll you'll find like a specialist nurse team. But if you if you look at them and you reflect on them, the question is, how many pharmacists do you see embedded yeah. within this team? Is mm. very very few. Yeah. For a lot of these teams, for them, it's very hard to appreciate what pharmacists bring to the table yeah. because we've never really gone out of our, you know, we've we've gone we've capitalized on that opportunity mm. and we've gone there and we've brought our input the good thing with pharmacists especially uh, post uh, registration in hospital practice is that we have like a rotational program yeah. that rotational program i think is critical because yeah. you get an appreciation you have to go through all the different specialties yeah, because irrespective of what area you go into when your patient lands on the ward mm. they're not just going to come with a gastroenterology yeah. problem that might be the main presenting mm. complaint but They've got all the other comorbidities, yeah. and I think that's where we can capitalize and use that foundation, yeah. uh, foundational experience, all the different mm-hmm. therapeutic areas. And then there is like an overlap. There is aspects where we we have that expertise, and we say, well, actually, you know, we need to do this with this medication. Yeah. It's not necessarily you know gastroenterology, mm-hmm. and that's where I think there's that is that appreciation. Um, we you know there's an ongoing review. Mm-hmm. 
So absolutely, I think it is uh, any pre-regs out there on, especially in the hospital setting, yeah. I would strongly advocate identifying who the mm. clinical specialist teams are when they're on that rotation. For example, if it's cardiology, gastroenterology, yeah. find out who the different specialist mm. nurses are. And they're easy to identify because they always get called upon by the yeah. consultants, come review this patient. Mm. You know, they need to go and, you know, expose themselves to these yeah. teams and what their roles are. Mm. And then maybe just trying to identify niches, where would the pharmacist fit yeah. in this capacity? Mm. Okay, so yeah, I've, everything that you've said is things that I strongly agree with and something I promote all the time. Um, I think if service provision can be met, it's definitely what pharmacies should be doing. Mm. Um, we all, I know funding is a big part of it, but mm. what better way to show the medical division how much pharmacists are worth and how valuable they are being on the ward rounds, mm. influencing prescribing decisions and mm. showing your worth. That's a real way to show how valuable you are and that's what's going to change mm. funding as well. Um, so I've been a pharmacist a year now. Um, I've learned how to work MDT and become MDT just solely from you, if I'm being honest. There's going to be a lot of people that may have not shadowed a pharmacist that works so integrated into the multidisciplinary team. What advice would you give to a day one pharmacist on a new ward, for instance, a medical ward? How should they become more multidisciplinary team yeah. working? I think initially, from a pharmacy perspective, we can't lose focus of like the core mm. services. You know, there's a the pharmacy service has got its requirements as well. Yeah. Um, so, I think initially, there's there's certain aspects of a pharmacist role which I think we need to separate from mm. the core professional knowledge. Yeah. And these are just general skills which probably apply to all specialties or different healthcare professionals. This is identifying tasks, prioritization, mm. what are the needs of the services. Mm. Once there's an appreciation of what the core expectations are from our role and then identifying once we're comfortable in that role, mm. then can we juggle these extra responsibilities which yeah. is embedding yourself within yeah. the uh, MDT team. Mm. I don't know if you probably saw, like, for example, if I'm on the ward round with the gastroenterology team. Mm. Yes, when we're there with the patient, I'll have the input mm. with the respect to prescribing, monitoring, act upon, highlighting yeah. certain bloods and so on. But when the doctors are probably having a discussion, say, for example, with the patient mm. about more interventional procedures, which are not in, within the scope of pharmacy, it's then using that time, okay, yeah. quickly do the prescribing, mm. do the ordering, maybe update the TTO or something like mm. that. But again, that just comes, you wouldn't expect a day one pharmacist, you know, yeah. to be, that just comes with experience. Yeah. And once you're comfortable in the foundations, mm. once you've got a solid foundation, then yes, it's looking for the opportunities and initially starting off maybe once a fortnight or, you know, one day a week, yeah. embedding yourself and can I come on the ward round when yeah. you're comfortable that you've got that time and, yeah. you know, the, the needs of the service have been mm. met. But over the, I think, as I've progressed over the years, when I've come across the pharmacists, who are quite embedded within their specialties, one of the key things you'll find is some of them started off where there was no service provision. They, yeah. they had no senior pharmacists overlooking them. Mm. They just identified like a niche or they identified an opportunity mm. and they just embedded themselves in it. They were in yeah. for the long game, as they yeah. call it. I might ruffle a few feathers here, but I think my perspective on things, especially historically when pharmacists, you know, they, they graduated, there was a demand for, especially in the community. Yeah. Financially, it was a very, very, it still is to some extent, but initially, straight out, day one pharmacist, yeah. it was a financially rewarding mm. career profession. So I think there's always been like this expectation of, you know, I'm putting this much input mm. and I get a really good, you know, return for it. Yeah. But over the years, we've seen this as it becomes saturated, more and more pharmacists are doing certain roles. Mm. You know, naturally, it's basically economics, isn't it? Yeah that financial reward now as opposed to getting it immediately yeah so that we're having to work for it yeah definitely some farms maybe they just expect that and we see it well no i know there's an opportunity there but i'm not gonna i want to get paid for it first mm. but we're, we're in an era now where mm. like i said nurse have capitalized on it mm. naturally you know uh commissioners they will say well hang on a minute mm. we've already got a nurse into a fantastic job yeah, I don't even know what you bring to the table first and foremost, but you're asking for, mm. you know, a lot more than what they're getting paid. Why should I employ, yeah, you know, a pharmacist? This is one that when when I initially had proposed, you know, to embed myself in the gastroenterology service, I knew at the back of my mind, mm. this is a natural question, that you mm. know, why should we pay you a lot more than, yeah, say for example, a clinical nurse specialist? Yeah, 
no disrespect to you know mm. and i still learn f- from them you yeah. know I, i rely heavily on our clinical nurse specialists mm. but i think when it comes to prescribing a lot of cons- for example consultants will ask you for your advice mm. the, the book stops for you yeah and that's where the you know but again it's the long game it's just yeah. knowing that well, actually let me show you what i bring to the table yeah. and mm. i know i was confident that they will appreciate and they yeah. will uh, they will have an appreciation mm. for what we bring to the table and they will mm. they will they will buy it. yeah um so i think yeah you you've got two very different mindsets there yeah there's some who are quite motivated and it's you know service driven they want to expand advance their role and they know eventually yes mm. they will get rewarded for their efforts yeah. you know and they're in it for the long game but unfortunately if we're going to sit on the sideline and say mm. no actually I want to get paid first and yeah you might be on the sidelines for a while. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think what you do in anyway the role that you've achieved employed by gastro and doing your clinics mm. and being completely gastro driven um it's such an amazing thing and um a lot of even the more senior pharmacists listening may look at you for some advice and things like that as well <laughs> from what you've achieved definitely. Um so we'll talk a little bit about more of your sort of work as a gastroenterology pharmacist. So gastro in my experience it covers so many conditions it's one of the medical conditions where you get quite complex patients they have a lot more a lot of comorbidities um and even gastro itself covers so many different conditions as i've mentioned um what would your normal sort of work ward makeup be in terms of patients what are the core conditions you'll yeah. see i mean this is not like an exhaustive list but mm. generally for a district general hospital so for example hepatology yeah. there'll be acute you know liver disease that could be related to alcohol yeah. it could be for other reasons infectious causes ischemic mm. but you'll see them coming in with evidence of insult to the to the liver mm. there might be an element of decompensation yeah so you see like the work up you know diagnostic mm. point of view then the treatment the management plan and there's an appreciation of how these patients how they present mm. also inflammatory bowel disease mm. we might get cases of respecting nutrition for whatever reason patients they can't meet uh, their nutritional needs commonly we see for example um, newly diagnosed with yeah. GI cancers mm. patients come in pinous yeah. jaundice mm. you know that on the outlook there's nothing yeah. they just look yellow they don't feel anything mm. then there's the diagnostic workup and there might be something yeah. a bit more sinister going on that's the initial and then you might see them progress you know during the course of their the clinical mm. disease and so on and then we see the other end the other end of the spectrum which is palliation yeah so where one of the specialties actually where we get a dedicated input from the palliative team mm. on they physically come to the ward once a week and they give input for a lot yeah. of our patients because they realize that there's a need for palliation mm. so yeah we've seen a lot of different aspects there from from a pharmaceutical point of view mm. especially like the nutri- if they can't meet their nutritional requirements via yeah. oral diet they've got enteral feeding tubes yeah. there's a pharmaceutical aspect you know how mm. do you get the the medication into the patient mm. um i mean so that's just a very brief kind of overview yeah. and you do see there will be the aspects as well mm. i think um when i covid gastro as well it was a district general hospital as well so many different age groups as well in gastro yeah, especially when you talked about the sort of um, upper gi cancers and things such as that it can be a young young aged male 21 years old coming in and he's got um, cancer that metastasis and it's so many different conditions and so many different ages especially when it comes to your sort of um, patients that are decompensated from alcohol and Absolutely. things such as that so many different mm. um, aspects to it especially the mental health side with these patients as Absolutely, well Absolutely yeah So that's another area you know yeah. where we have quite active input from the mm. mental health liaison team yeah we would get a visit from like the psychiatrist mm. eating disorders and so mm. on um but you probably saw for yourself and have yeah. an appreciation for especially liver disorders sometimes you can get patients who are relatively mm. young mm. but you see the progressive and aggressive yeah. nature of mm. uh, liver disease and decompensation yeah I think it's um especially as a pharmacist I think a lot of times I had input on gastro change in medications a lot of gastro patients the renal function will deteriorate AKI hepatorenal syndrome things such as that 
Um, another key thing for those that haven't covered gastro would be you're going to know new like the back of your hands at the end of it because so many patients get swollen difficulties mm. or OGDs happening where they have a perforation and things such as yeah. that so you must know new like the back of your hands now mustn't well, you? Uh, I know the login details by heart <laughs> yeah I don't know about the back of my hand but yeah I've yeah. definitely memorized the login details for okay. the trust. So yeah as, as we mentioned gastroenterology covers so many different diseases um, Mohammed's got a special interest in IBD so inflammatory bowel disease he runs clinics um, has dedicated flare clinics and does the biologic prescribing as well so Mohammed what is IBD? It's an umbrella term, so inflammatory bowel disease, but the two common forms that we see are ulcerative colitis and yeah. Crohn's disease. So, I mean, clinically, sometimes it can manifest the same mm. in the sense that high frequency of you know, uh, stools, yeah. uh, bleeding uh, in the stools, uh, urgency, abdominal pain, yeah. lethargic all. But the differentiator uh, histologically the the way the, so ulcerative colitis is quite extensive it works on the rectum yeah throughout the the large colon whereas Crohn's disease kind of like mm. skip type lesions um, they can both be quite aggressive even yeah. ulcerative colitis can be have a very massive impact on yeah. patients they can require acute admissions um, and sometimes if there is a need for surgery in an acute mm. Um, during an acute admission and the outcomes are quite complicated yeah. afterwards as well uh, a lot worse than I would say for example mm. uh, planning a, an elective surgery for these patients but generally there's, there's this kind of thinking with ulcerative colitis that if you do have the surgery mm. effectively you could it's like cure, you're curing it yeah Crohn's disease mm. there is like a, the, the progressive nature of it it yeah. can from, move from inflammatory nature to a fibrotic mm. nature yeah you can have complications due to strictures. Mm. You, there is, I think, the statistics are the vast majority of patients during their life or the cost of their Crohn's disease, they will require some form of surgery. Mm. But that's where the difficulty comes in is that it mm. can reoccur at any time, at yeah. any time or in different locations. Yeah. So for patients with like a very aggressive phenotype of the Crohn's disease, mm. sometimes in the position where they're just chopping bits of the bowel yeah. you know, over the course of their mm. disease, and this would be then it has other effects with respect to nutrition. Mm. Uh, so it can be quite aggressive. Mm. Mentally, it can be very... Yeah. Uh, it just has such a massive toll on patients, mm. especially when you see young patients coming in. Yeah. And they just go... In a way, they don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. It can be very... Mm. Uh, psychologically, it can have a massive toll on these yeah. patients. But that's more and more it's been recognized now uh, mm. the input of sci for psychological support yeah. with these patients um but yeah that is you know just a very quick summary of it generally from a medication point of view uh, the approach is or the, the medication that we use tend to mm. overlap or yeah. they're quite common between the two um yeah so i think you raise a very good point and it's something that i've seen myself mm. um Sometimes patients, um, when they first come in and they've not had an official diagnosis of IBD and they're being referred from the GP, it can just switch, just like in a um, click of a finger, how serious the condition is. So, for instance, you may be a patient and you've had to go to the toilet quite a few times over a couple of weeks. You've not had it checked out. It's getting worse. Your GP gets referred and then you find out from the gastroenterology after a colonoscopy that you've got severe acute ulcerative colitis and they're going to have to take your bowels away. So it, I've seen decisions like that have to be made with the medical team alongside the patient and it is quite frightening a lot of times for Absolutely, patients yeah. as well. Absolutely, yeah. And it's such big decisions. Yeah, for my experience as well, you, patients have their own you know, yeah. journey with the disease. Some patients, they do well, they respond mm. to medical therapy. Some patients, they come and they just naturally, they just got very aggressive phenotype. Mm. Um, but I think the other thing is to just from a diagnostic, that mindset, and you see that a lot, you probably appreciation yeah. from an MDT setting or if you've followed IBD teams, mm. it's always that question. Even for patients who've got an existing diet, is this IBD or could yeah. there be other reasons for mm. it? So yeah, you do develop that mindset of working through it systematically. Yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, just this mo we've had on the ward, mm. two cases of colitis, one is typical inflammatory in yeah. nature and the other one's eventually identified mm. like an infectious cause. Yeah. So the way you treat it and the mm. outcomes are completely different. Mm. So in terms of um, the mental health aspect, 
do you commonly see your patients with IBD um, have coexisting depression and oh, anxiety yeah, from yeah. it? We've had some, personally myself, I've, uh, we've dealt with a bit of support patients. Yeah. Usually, uh, you know, some are quite young. They've, mm. they've had it from uh, when they were under pediatric services. Yeah. They're living with it. The toll on it is massive. Yeah. Uh, some of them is even pushed them to the point where they've attempted suicide. Yeah. Um, mm. The difficulty is, is just re- we recognise within the IBD circles the significance of psychological support. Yeah. But the difficulty is actually accessing that mm. within, you know, from the commissioners or yeah. within primary care and so on. Um, that can be quite difficult. Mm. Um, and then it's just, you can support these patients, but you can appreciate their point mm. of view as well. Yeah. And then, it's, like we said, sometimes it's easier said than done surgery. But mm. surgery is... It is a treatment option, but mm-hmm. it has to be it has to be timed. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it has to be you know in optimal kind of conditions where possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, yeah, these are like the kind of challenges that all yeah. every patient will bring their own challenges. But that's what mm. you know it makes the especially for myself mm. quite interesting. Yeah, you know, it, there's always like a learning need. Mm. There's always somewhere for me to develop. Yeah. Um, so one thing I enjoyed about the. Um, inflammatory bowel disease patients is the care that they get is very much multidisciplinary team so you get the surgical team involved the you get the gastroenterology department and the ibd nurses and mental health teams involved as well and before a decision such as surgery um it, an mdt does happen and everything is considered quite thoroughly as well um do you know, in terms of symptoms a lot of people won't know what are the symptoms of ibd so someone that's what sort of symptoms can someone in a flare expect? Like I said, sometimes it can be variable. Usually, for, for example, like ulcerative colitis, yeah. just for, uh, for argument's sake, they could have like a baseline, for example, when they were oh, when before they were well. So it's always important to map it to what, yeah. you know, the bowel function or their bowel habits, should mm. I say, look like on a good day, mm. relatively speaking. And then you might see patients, for example, the frequency just goes off the charts. Mm. There's bleeding all the time. There's yeah. very hardly any formed kind of stools. Mm. You would work them up, but and it's not just a clinical thing. You have to work, you have to have objective evidence. Yeah. And this is a thing before they go. If mm. you are looking at surgery, there needs to be objective evidence that yes, this is definitely. Mm. Infl- there's a lot of inflammation going on here. Mm. They're not responding to treatment, mm. and you know surgery is uh, justified in this case. Mm. Sometimes we've had patients, for example, where the surgeons are there, they're sharpening the scalpel, whatever, they get the tools ready. Mm. And then we just ask for that uh, sigmoidoscopy or objective yeah. assessment. Perhaps these have been taken, it's come back, there's uh, an infectious cause such as uh, CMV. Mm. That just changes the, the picture completely. Mm. You treat them with the relevant antivirals mm. and they respond. Mm. You've averted surgery. Mm. Um, with respect to Crohn's disease, sometimes it could be the other way around. If they've got a disease which is more obstructive in nature, mm. those can sometimes be like, you know, subacute cases or medical yeah. emergencies. If they go into all-out obstruction mm. and become very symptomatic, there's always a risk of perforation with both, you know. So it's identifying it, and that is one of our challenges, especially in the COVID era. Yeah, It's different when you can eyeball patients, you can see them. Mm. Some patients that, you know, they've learned to mm. deal with their IBD, they put on a brave face and they just crack on with it. Mm. And it, that can be quite difficult sometimes over phone clinics. Yeah. Um, so um, in terms of inflammatory bowel disease as well, um, I think just for all those pharmacists and pre-regers listening, it's important to know the anatomy of your bowels, your different sections of your bowels, just because management sometimes differs as well. So if you are listening in, Google images and have a look at what pancreatitis is, look at the different part of your large bowel, your small bowel, um, just because management may vary between um, different sorts of um, parts of your bowels being affected as well. Um, so Mohammed, in terms of inflammatory bowel disease, um, as we've mentioned, it can have a massive impact on patients' lifestyles and mental health and things such as that. Um, we talk to a, a lot of people use smoking as a sort of stress relief slash if they're feeling a bit down, they'll be smoking. Um, in terms of Crohn's disease, I know that it's heavily affected with smoking and there's direct correlation studies between the two. Um, what sort of advice do you give to patients? Do you counsel them on smoking? Yeah, it's 
it's one of our consultants he puts it if he yeah. had option from a therapeutics point of view mm. biologics or stop smoking the single most most significant intervention you could uh, have is to stop smoking yeah. it's as simple as that mm. and we tend to be very blunt with patients especially mm. when they're coming in hospital admissions some patients do appreciate that they're just so rattled by the nature of their admission and they just make you know, and you, you see that mm. they determine, right, I'm just going to knock it on the head, I'm not smoking no mm. more. And it has the biggest outcome. Yeah. It is the biggest intervention in Crohn's mm. disease. Some patients, unfortunately for them, it's how they deal with the stress of living with IBD. Yeah. I think all you can really do is, yeah, mm. stress it to them. Yeah. And we do get patients here, for example, we have multiple encounters with them mm. or they come in and we know we've addressed it. They might have cut down the smoking. Mm. You know they're trying. Yeah. But it's just that getting the message, repeating it again and again mm. to them. Yeah. Um, and we do sometimes, or we try to offer them yeah. or counsel them about services out there mm. that might help support them yeah. in respect to the smoking cessation. Yeah. So with inflammatory bowel disease as well, um, a lot of times um, patients with ulcerative rates of colitis, if they get flared, they get put on steroids and to induce remission again. Um, I think it's important, from my, from my practice anyway, I've seen a lot of inflammatory bowel patients, um, they have other um, conditions such as osteoporosis from frequent steroid use and things such as that. I think it's important for community pharmacy teams and those working within general practice, if you see that patients having um, a lot of steroid costs and whatnot, it's so important to have bone protection there and gastro protection there. Um, is this something that you do in your clinics, make sure patients are on them? Or? Yeah, again, you risk assess the patient. Yeah. If you've got patients, or even for young patients, mm. you know the, the disease history, the treatment history, yeah. if they're having repetitive courses. But again, it's one of those signs that we look out for. If they're having more multiple courses in a year, mm. it's actually a sign that things aren't going as well as they yeah. should be. So yeah, do we need to escalate mm. their management? And it's one of the things which is addressed in a lot of clinical trials, steroid-free mm. remission. Yeah. It's one of the outcomes that we tend mm. to go for. But definitely, in an acute setting, yeah, the, the work one does, basically. Yeah. But you don't want patients on them. Steroids long term, yeah. I know. Um, or become steroid, uh, you know, dependent to yeah. some extent. Sometimes uh, I've seen it in terms of if someone gets admitted into secondary care, um, they may not need steroids. Maybe um, we can control them on the existing therapies. Sometimes patients really ask and beg for steroids, and a lot of patients see it as a wonder drug without knowing the sort of adverse effects and side effects that frequent steroids bring alongside it as well. Um, in terms of your flare clinics, um, are these being done remotely now because of COVID? Yeah, so the difference is, so we identify patients yeah. uh, to begin with the, the biologic clinics. Yeah. So these are patients, for example, they've been discussed at MDT, often mm. the water being referred, they need escalation therapy to, for, to the immunosuppressant given the options, counsel them, the mm. risks, the benefits, yeah. how we monitor the response, yeah. the dosing schedule, the bloods, ordering all that with it, any pre-screen that needs to be done, managing that whole aspect, getting the infusions up, uh, mm. scheduled, or if it's via home care, setting up their accounts and then mm. monitoring them. Then also there'll be patients who they're experiencing maybe side effects with their treatment, mm. so they'll get scheduled in for like a follow-up with myself just to try to correlate things is this treatment related? What can we do to manage yeah. it? Sometimes it's easier said than done, as with a lot of adverse effects, the mm. ultimate resolution is just stop the drug. Yeah. But in patients with this chronic mm. uh, nature of IBD, mm. that's easier said than done. So it's a case of managing the benefits and the risks. With respect to the flare clinics, yes, it'll be patients uh, who, they might be on biological, yeah. escalate them, but they're still very, very symptomatic. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's something that I'm still... I would say for myself, I'm still developing. Yeah. I've got fantastic support from my uh, fellow, mm. the nursing colleagues and mm. the consultants and uh, the members of the team. Mm. But it's just developing that systematic approach, yeah. mapping it to uh, to the baseline. Mm. And just, again, it's developing that experience, that intuition, when to escalate it. Mm. Uh, so that's that aspect, but yes, then the other thing is on the wards. Yeah. Patients are getting called, or they're getting admitted acutely. Yeah. Seeing them on the ward, mm. if need be, counselling for the escalation therapy. Mm. Just doing a document, uh, quite a detailed 
I wouldn't say I don't know if you want to call it Clark in history, but from an IBD yeah. perspective, mm. just summarizing all the disease history yeah. and investigation they had, and importantly, their treatment history, number mm. of sterile courses in the past year, and what the potential options are. Mm. I mean, it's a lot. Many many years ago, sometimes we even you know comment amongst ourselves, what what did we do so many years ago yeah. when all we had was like steroids, maybe. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, thiopurin or something, yeah. and that was it. Mm. But now, you know, we're seeing more and more therapies. And that's actually the, the, the other aspect, uh, which I forgot to mention this, so we get more and more involved from a clinical trials perspective. Mm. So I know a lot of pharmacy teams, we, we see, uh, you know, the hospitals will have a clinical trials team. Yeah. But it's more so managing the, the trial drug receipt, mm. the records, and so on. Mm. I've been very fortunate in the sense of seeing it on the other side, how patients are selected. Mm. So we might be an MDT, we know patients, and you think, well, actually, this patient might yeah. be a good candidate for this, and then we'll put that mm. forward to them, we'll counsel them. The consultant who's the principal investigator, mm. they will uh, go through it in more detail. So I've been involved in a few with a few patients yeah. now who are part of uh, trials for up-and-coming therapy, should we say, mm. some new classes of medication, some just new medications in existing classes yeah. of biologics. And it's just interesting to see them, how they progress yeah. over the year. Mm. And having that pharmacy input in the sense, seeing the randomization, mm. how they've been followed up, the monitoring, yeah. and then it's just streamlining that process of getting the medication dispensed. And you see things, again, mm. my perspective, I've seen things just get done a lot more efficiently and a lot quicker. Mm. And it's been involved throughout the whole patient journey as yeah. opposed to just that end aspect with risk, you know, yeah. for dispensing. Yeah, I think um, it's very good that you such a heavy part of the biologics and you're prescribing biologics. I think pharmacists are the most perfect sort of healthcare professionals to manage biologics as well. Um, in the future, I see biologics to be the future of a lot of conditions. Um, for example, rheumatoid arthritis, things such as that. Biologics are evolving. I know they're very expensive, um, but a lot more diseases and conditions are being trialed with biologics and they're having very good data and studies coming out from them. For example, in my practice anyway, infliximab um, is the most common biologic that we use with our uh, IBD patients and it does work very well for the majority of patients. Yeah, yeah. Some would describe it as like the magic that magic bullet yeah you know, it's absolutely transformed yeah and you know they'll swear by it yeah um but again this is part of the challenges and the experiences mm. sometimes you get a feel for you know how patients are responding but this is what i mean yeah it's that clinical experience that mm. intuition that you develop mm. um and it's interesting because it's more and more actually now what mm. we're seeing is where historically patients would come in yeah in an acute situation and it would be like right get mm. get the infliximab ready yeah let's go save their bowel yeah <laughs> But now it's like, oh, hang on a minute, they've had infliximab, what do we do now? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, we see more and more patients, and then mm. these these are like the challenges. Mm. But then this is where, I think, as a pharmacy, if, for whatever specialty, if you're embedded in the teams to that extent, yeah, y you have to be on your toes, you have to be aware of mm. what the the latest evidence is. Mm. And a lot of it won't be randomised controlled trials. Yeah, It could be anecdotal small case yeah. reports mm. or small case studies and samples. Mm. And then this other thing is building that network. Yeah. Uh, within IBD myself, there's mm. been multiple in instances where I've liaised with colleagues from mm. other trust tertiary centers, sometimes yeah. even internationally. Yeah. We're looking at very, you know, might mm. be a patient with a very complex background, yeah. loads of other factors to consider. Mm. And you're in a position where you think, actually, I mm. let me just bounce it to. So yeah. they're a specialist in this area mm. or they're quite active yeah. in the research uh, kind of capacity. Mm. And it's just getting the input. Yeah, yeah. I think networking is key, such as that. I think it's, yeah. especially if you want to specialise in a certain area, you, you, you need to make contacts within that area. You need to network liaise because there's so much you can learn off one another. Absolutely. For example, yourself as a gastropharmacist, if you liaise with another gastro consultant or a gastropharmacist, you may have the same questions, the same challenges, um, you may benefit and give advice to each other. Mm. So it's so important to network, yeah. definitely. Yeah, I th it's one of the things that I would actually comment on. I think nationally I've noticed that the pharmacists within the specialist are doing fantastic, yeah. great great things. But unfortunately, I don't think we're really capturing it in a mm. formal manner. Mm. Publications, yeah. 
I'm very fortunate in the sense we've got a UK CPA as mm. a good platform mm. on the gastroenterology forums, mm. quite active. Mm. We liaise with one another or we'll put queries out there. Mm. Um, but it's just, it would be great if we were capturing more of our practice in a more formal manner, mm. publications, and it mm. became more frequent. Definitely, with a, especially with, as we've mentioned, a lot of the specialist roles go to nurses. And I think the, work, the way we see things going forward is pharmacists are becoming more of these specialist roles and certain specialities as well. So it definitely will be good to do. You mentioned um, the UK CPA. I know they're doing some amazing work. Um, it's very good to follow them on Twitter if anyone's not already following them. Um, is there any anyone else you could recommend to follow? or? Um. Yeah, so like, I use Twitter quite a lot, actually. No, I'm not active, as in... You never tweeting. tweet. I, no. I never see, I see, I never seen tweet. a tweet from no, you. No, <laughs> I'm there, though. I'm lingering about in the sense... Um, but yeah, Monday Night IBD is actually a very good... Um, yeah. It was an initiative started in America mm. uh, by one of the gastroenterologists there, but it's picked up massive exposure mm. and um, a lot of followers. Yeah. and. So every Monday they have like case-based discussions. Mm. They'll have a specialist who will mm. be facilitating. And I think we've actually got gastroenterologists from the UK as well now yeah. who have sometimes led and facilitated mm. the discussion. And it's very, very interesting. You just, there'll be the initial mm. poll. And I think the biggest thing which reflects the acceptance of this or the way forward yeah. is that I think in America now it's actually recognised as a, you yeah. know, for continuing medical education points. Yeah. Okay, so Mohamed, um, you briefly mentioned you you're a very senior pharmacist now. You, oh, I don't know no, about that. You're doing very well. You've got your own <laughs> no, clinics. Maybe you, in your eyes, but yeah, in there, you no. are you, you're always an inspiration <laughs> in my eyes. Um, you're doing clinics. You've got your own clinics. Doing all the biologic prescribing. You run the ward rounds. You're you're a specialist in your own right now. That's how I see you anyway. I know you're a very humble man and never say it, but. What do you love most about your role? I know you've worked so hard and I've seen how hard you've worked to come here. So what do, what yeah. do you love the most? Uh, I think, yes, it, the different challenges, you know, each day brings. Mm. And this is one of the benefits of being there at the point of care yeah. in the ward rounds clinics. Mm. You'll see patients and especially in the gastroenterology mm. kind of setting, the chronic nature of a lot of these uh, yeah. diseases you're seeing or you're supporting patients throughout mm. the journey of their disease it's very satisfying when you actually make recommendations or mm. you initiate therapy and you see patients respond and mm. you see the massive difference it might sound like a cliche but i think if you've been there a patient where they've potentially been in a position where yeah. they might be having massive surgery life-changing mm. surgery mm. you initiate as a team certain mm. interventions and you see them respond yeah and we do get feedback from patients, mm. and it's satisfying. Mm. Um, but I don't know if I sound philosophically or whatever. <laughs> but I mean, and I think it's probably what I've learned from seniors, or just generally speaking, you know, a lot of it from my father. I think mm. it's just every morning, you know, that I, it's renewing my your intention. You know, why are you going out there? Yeah. It's not for fame and popularity yeah. and stuff like. Oh, the, these are things that just you know the financial mm. aspect, but it's. So as I said, you want to go out there, you want to do something mm. good, you want to serve people, yeah. you know, in whatever way you can. Mm. So for myself, I try to renew that, you know, every day. That's, mm. you know, why you're going out there. Mm. And then I think those are, there are aspects that I think what really kind of got the matter for my father, because he, he's got like a, like a chronic inflammatory type, you know, condition. Mm. And you see, you know, from a patient perspective, you're living yeah. with it, you see the impact of it, mm. getting through to some of the services, mm. the delay in treatments. Mm. And you, when you've seen patients that, you know, with their own, yeah. some of the things I'd say, you know, I, I wouldn't wish that on anyone really. Yeah. And if I can make even that ounce of difference, mm. then that within mm. itself is satisfying. So, you know, yeah. I hope I can keep it up, you know. Yeah. That, no, you're definitely um, keeping it up. You know, maintaining the pure intention. Yeah. <laughs> No, I am sure you are. I've seen it myself, Mohammed, just from working with you. As I've said, you're different to any other pharmacists I've shadowed. All the other pre-regis with me have said yeah. it as well. <laughs> I think you just um, probably... I know I appreciate that. No, like no, Mohammed, not even that. I, I mean, think, yeah. at the same time, I'd like to... I, I've had some fantastic... And even now, fantastic yeah. colleagues within mm. you know, the pharmacy department. Yeah. And I can't name them all, but yeah. I think within their own rights, every yeah. single one of them in some aspect, mm. they might, they might, they might not know. Yeah. But 
And I think this is one that actually benefits during the yeah. pre-reg year and the foundation years, especially when you're seeing mm. different, different pharmacies. I can honestly say I've probably picked bits and bobs from every single pharmacy that I've shadowed yeah. and I've probably just amalgamated it or mm. tailored it to what, you mm. know, kind of works best for yeah. me. But within their own rights, mm. uh, they've all definitely had some sort of impact mm. or influenced me in one way or another. Mm. Um, so definitely, and on the other hand as well, my colleagues within the gastroenterology service, the consultant, the specialist nurses, mm. you know, they've been pivotal and fantastic mm. in support. And I think it really helps when you've got colleagues who, yeah. who actually believe in, you know, mm. uh, what you bring to the table. Mm. Um, so definitely, yeah, it makes it a lot easier. Mm. So you've talked a lot about what you love about your role um, and the reasons why you're doing your role. And it is very inspiring. Um, let's flip it now and what are the challenges of your role what what gets you at the end of the day and you're thinking that it was a really tough day um sometimes you get like these like i said difficult patients in this with respect to their disease mm. but i think it's more so like uh, you know you want the best for your patient you wish them be- uh, good you want them to respond mm. and sometimes it, that can be quite difficult when mm. you're then having to break or you know things aren't going how, how do you communicate that to patients yeah. you know mm-hmm. how do you support them in that um and i think sometimes yeah the, the, I, I get a, a sense of you the pharmacist mm. you spot medication mm. again it's just expanded that role mm. whatever ask a, a sector you're in community hospital mm. gp it's trying to develop that empathy and you know supporting your patients yeah. and understanding from their perspective you know, they have to live with it yeah you know, we might study it read it mm. for x number of years they're living with it for mm. Yeah. Probably, you know, in some patients, most of their life. And um, I think with inflammatory bowel disease, we covered it in university, um, Bradford University. But I'll be honest, I never gained a true appreciation of how serious this condition can be and how much it can affect people's lives until I covered a gastro ward. Yeah. And I think it just reiterates the point, Mohammed. We need to be in clinical practice throughout our university yeah. education because that's the only time you get a true understanding and a true appreciation. When you have patients crying to you saying they're going to lose their bowels, they don't want a stoma or... Um, you, you really do appreciate what patients do go through. So yeah. I think it is something that needs to change. Like I said, I think at this moment in time, mm. we're going through a phase where healthcare, the way healthcare is delivered, yeah. it's, it's uh, constantly evolving. Mm. And I, I agree, you know, we do need to probably step up the challenge and uh, appreciate these changes and mm. accept these changes, mm. look for the opportunities within them and maybe tailor our undergraduate mm. courses and so on. Yeah. But just the nature of we're dealing with so many. There is still that pharmaceutical aspect, yeah. Especially in IBD, sometimes mm. there are cases where you have to use certain medications in an off-label kind of mm. manner, different formulations. Yeah. That pharmaceutical knowledge does have to be applied. Then, mm. even though that you know the, the the scenarios when you have to do that might be you know every now and then, but mm. still you need to be able to fall back on it, yeah, and be able to apply those basic yeah. principles. But yeah, I think from Huddersfield University early on there was a very heavy focus on exposure to clinical practice mm. right from the from day one mm. they facilitated uh, student visits to mm. different sectors even nurses actually mm. I, mean, I think maybe second year or something mm. we had visits with community nurses mm. you would go to the patient's house you would get, have exposure mm. to that and then in the final year we had uh, specialist farms from Sheffield mm. uh, hospitals I think it yeah. was they came and they were the so it wasn't like for example a lecturer who mm. with all due respect then had to go away mm. you know revise on certain that and then deliver that lecture yeah. it wasn't like that mm. they had pharmacists coming from practice yeah specialists within their own rights mm. coming and delivering these lectures yeah. so i mean that was it's good but yeah it's like now we probably just need to reassess where are we now yeah what do we need to tailor mm. do we need to increase the length of you know clinical exposure yeah uh, in practice mm. we see that a lot for example in medicine nursing mm. students they, they they come into practice mm. they have long placements mm. we're not talking days or just odd week here mm. or there they're quite long um, placements and they have outcomes yeah. that they need to meet competencies that they mm. need to meet yeah so early on I feel yeah maybe they can address the whole the legal aspects of pharmacy the ethics yeah but towards the end of the course maybe uh, mm. actual folks and demonstrating certain competencies in I know practice. the pre-reg I know the yeah. pre-reg year is for that mm. but maybe getting uh, undergraduates into that yeah 
uh, into those habits. Yeah, well, it is changing now, and there is education reforms and different yeah. new standards happening. Um, so, we're almost at an hour now, anyway. So, um, for those listening, for those pre-regs or pharmacists that have just newly qualified, what advice could you give to them from your experiences? Just be in it for the long game. Okay. Again, the intention, you know, what you're doing. If it's, you know, financial and so on, mm. yes, we do need to be financially rewarded. Mm. I'm not denying that at all. Mm. But again, it's the scenario we're in now. Historically, the profession was very well financially rewarded. But when you get into a situation mm. where, for example, if you've been low coming for the best part of your career, yeah, and then if you want to make the transition, the, the question is, well... Mm. Is there any formal postgraduate experience to to show mm. that you've got this mm. these competencies? That's what it boils down to. Yeah, that's what the diploma is there for. Mm. But we're in an in an era now where, like I said, things are evolving so fast. Mm. It's just seeking those uh, areas for opportunity, mm. welcoming change. Change is not easy. It's not. It can be difficult sometimes, yeah. even with you know large organisations, mm. and it's difficult to appreciate when they're first proposed. Mm. But Sometimes it's that shake-up is what you need mm. to develop and you'll only realise it once you've gone through it. Mm. You know, actually, I've seen the benefits of it now. Mm. So I think we need to be flexible, not like a one-trick pony. Mm. Um, but yeah, in a nutshell, mm. seek those opportunities, yeah. welcome change, mm. always seek to develop yourself, mm. bounce yeah. off for the colleagues, yeah. you know, take the, learn from others. Yeah, I've always, I've always, I think it's from yourself, um, I've always adopted the mindset, it's always short-term sacrifices for long-term gains. If you're making a financial um, sort of loss from a certain opportunity, it always opens the doors. Being in a clinical environment will always open up doors and opportunities for yourself. So those new newer in your career or pre-regs, make sure you go out and grab every opportunity you can, especially once you're on pre-reg. There's no any there's no opportunity like pre-reg. Absolutely. No opportunity. That like that pre-reg. is your one year to Yeah. Obviously they have to meet the competencies mm. that are required of them. But it's the perfect platform mm. to capitalize on the opportunities that are mm. there the clinical opportunities all the different teams yeah. clinics consultants um and other especially mm. other uh, pharmacists who've been yeah. maybe practicing for mm. quite a number of years it's the opportunity to work mm. shadowing them and seeing you know mm. what you can learn from them i'm so grateful we had a pharmacist like you Mohammed, mentoring us even I'm be my tutor be there no, now the way no. you <laughs> my, my tutor was amazing shama was amazing i know um i'm very close to her still and i know we've got a close network but even yourself mom you wasn't my tutor um you didn't have to take any responsibility over me but when i started that six months block in calderdale and huddersfield first day you've grabbed me to your office you sat me down you said right this is what you're going to do you're going to arrange you're going to um so you, you didn't buckle in <laughs> no but you, you i don't think i had office then <laughs> well you took that back office all the time on the right yeah. Um, but yeah you arranged for me to um shadow all these specialist teams and nurses and um you really it really demonstrates how passionate you are about um your more junior pharmacists, how all the band sixes, the ones band sixes that I shadowed, they all loved you and they said, if you ever need anything, go to Mohammed. So it's definitely reflective of the sort of character you are and the sort of person you are, Mohammed. Oh, Def- I feel like you're exaggerating. But no, yeah, I'm not. I'll, I'll take it as it comes. I'm not if, if you say so, if yeah. you say so. <laughs> For those that haven't had the pleasure of shadowing Mohammed, he's so passionate about education, so passionate about what pharmacists can do and healthcare, and he's always looking to improve looking to develop looking to evolve and i think it's a sort of mindset i wish a lot more people had and it's definitely helped me mohammed just the way you worked just your passion for healthcare it's changed the way i work definitely and it's changed the way i see healthcare so it well, is amazing it's satisfying you to know you know like you said um, the good aspects of the job so that's definitely one of them if yeah. you maybe help i don't know inspire that too much <laughs> <laughs> but yeah thank you Mohammed, for joining us today honestly no thank you for having me on star no. <laughs> that nickname's gone now that's only no. while i was a pre-reg that but... name's gonna live forever <laughs> star <Star-war. laughs> but no thank you so much Mohammed. 
Um, thanks for joining us. Um, I know we talked a lot about IBD, but gastroenterology covers too many conditions to talk about. Way too, one, much, yeah. way too many conditions. Um, but thank you once again for joining us. So a big thank you for everyone listening in to our first episode of 2021. We would like to apologize once again for the background noise. I'd like to extend a big thank you to Mohammed once again. As you can tell from the episode, Mohammed is a pharmacist I look up to a lot. He is someone that's provided me with a lot of mentorship, support and advice. If you have any specific questions for Mohammed, please feel free to contact us and we will be sure to forward it on to him. We plan to do a lot more podcasts such as this with clinical specialists from a wide array of sectors and also specialities. To keep up to date with our latest developments, please subscribe and follow us on our social media platforms at pharma underscore sense. Thank you all for listening in once again and happy new year. Thank you.